If I get anything wrong, just say, yeah. I'll just, I mean, I'm fine with stopping you and saying you're incorrect, sir. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, dude. <laughs> Dad. Dad. Well, Dad. do you want to tell that story or not? Uh, I mean, uh, I don't, is there a story? I don't know. What, is I, that your dad? Because remember, we were in Chicago. We were in Chicago. It was Lincoln Hall. We're standing. The Naperville ladies were there. Yeah. We should save this. This is the stuff that a podcast is based on. Huh? This is the stuff. Are we recording? Oh, we're recording. Well, we're recording. All right. So he can cut this in. But anyway, you were playing Lincoln Hall. I think you were opening for somebody. Yeah, I can't remember who we were on tour. Oh, I know exactly. It was. Uh, I was playing with Corey, I believe. Oh, really? Was it, was it not? Or was it the Rusted Hearts? No, it was, I think it was the Rusted Hearts. It was the Rusted Hearts. But okay. I think you were opening for somebody. Yeah, that would make sense. I don't remember who offhand. And it was pretty much, I mean, Lincoln Hall was no more than like a year, year and a half old. Yeah. It was a new venue. Yeah, my friend Christy was there with uh, all her girlfriends from Naperville. And you introduced me, and they some of them were from Rockford, or at least one yeah. was, and I just fell in love. They were all gorgeous and the Naperville ladies. Yeah. And but then we were standing and chatting, and they had you know left left, and some random gentleman came up. You tell the story. Well, I, I mean, all I really recollect from it was a guy comes up and he's like, "Man, is that your dad?" Well, for, okay, let me. You're not. You're being humble. The first thing he said, "Man, I've never heard of you, but I really love your music, and I just really want to know. You know, where, are you on the internet? Blah blah blah." And then he said, he looked at me and said, "So you must be very proud of him, right? You're, yeah, yeah. You must be very proud of him." And then you're like, um, "Well, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I think he thinks you're my dad." And you're like, "Oh." So then from that minute, well, from that minute, you turned around and said, "Yeah, he's my father. Yeah, he's my dad." He's very proud. I remember saying that. He's very proud of me. And you looked at me and gave me that side grin like, okay, we're going here, aren't we? And from then on, I mean, really, that was a solid probably 10 years ago. 10 years ago, but the text and the phone calls of... Hi, Dad. Inside joke. It's a great inside joke. Son, you did a great job the other night at Mary's place. Thanks, Dad. Yeah. No, it happens at least at least twice a year we get the father-son banter going, which is always appreciated, because it's actually, it's probably about the same amount of time I actually talk with my real dad. Yeah, well, the thing about it was, you know, given your real dad's Nick, Rick Nielsen, world famous, etc., this guy just standing there as a music guy in the middle of crowded Lincoln Hall in Chicago and made assumptions. Well, the nice thing was, he didn't know, clearly, you don't have the baseball hat on, the checkerboard stuff. So he didn't know anything about the Cheap Trick connection. So he actually liked our music based on the merit that it was good to him. Not that it was good because I'm the son of, you know. So I was like, oh, you guys are really great. Where can I find you? That kind of a thing, which is like an always a pleasure when you're like, it comes unsolicited or without bias that you just actually listen to the songs and you liked them that way, you know? Right, and it's just very natural. Yeah, that's what they call growing it organically. Growing it organically. Speaking of that, let's talk about YouTube for a minute. We ran into each other and had one of those father-son moments a couple weeks ago at the Norwegian... Still waiting for my allowance, by the way. Well, you're going to wait a long time for that. The Norwegian, a great local restaurant, and you were with your lovely wife, Kelly. Yeah. And you were talking about all the changes and the challenges in COVID. And I found, just in a brief conversation, 
that you had taken something that was intrinsically bad. I mean, all the music places shut down. The element of his organization, we haven't held an event in two and a half years. But you started using YouTube and other platforms. Why don't you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, early on, I mean, so I believe it was March 14th, 2020, that the stay-home order was put in place. And we were supposed to go on the road and do about 14 dates with the Nielsen Trust. And... On the 12th, I believe, or the 11th, we realized that all those dates had been canceled. Everything on our calendar for the next year had been postponed or canceled. And I looked up on Facebook and I saw this little button that said live. You know, I'm like, well, I know I know Facebook. I know people go live on Facebook. That, that's not me. I don't find my life to be something that I want to share live all the time. But the day before that, I happened to be walking on the bike path and I just hit the live button and wow. It just really takes you to your live on your Facebook page. And it was as simple as that, that I realized like, well, this might become a thing. And the following Thursday, Kelly and I from our living room set up uh, a pretty makeshift. Uh, I had a, a symbol stand that I then clipped in a selfie stick, <laughs> rigged up this contraption that I put my phone into. So we had a, you know, this was, the, we'd had no time to think about this. It was like, all right, we're going to do this. Well, how do we even hold the phone so it's steady so we can video the whole thing? So I clipped it into this selfie stick attached to this, you know, this drum stand. That was our boom uh, camera stand for the first two months, I think, of us recording. And so every Thursday night, we would set up an 8 p.m. Central. We would do a show for about an hour and 20 minutes. And we would put up our virtual tip jar and people would sign on. But then backtracking to implementing YouTube and then Facebook, you know, I had to figure out like, how do you tie these two together? How does this work? Because not everybody has Facebook. So not everybody could jump on. So then you have to figure out, well, there's another platform. YouTube is pretty accessible to most people. Well, let's make it so you can go on to YouTube and Facebook at the same time. If you click on this link, it'll take you to either one. So then we started advertising it that way and uh, really discovering that that was about the only time in the week that we would get dressed up. That was the only time in the week that we would put on like what I would call like show shoes, shoes that I would wear on stage, you know. Otherwise, we were going to the bike path or we were going outside. You know, it was, it was March. It was going into April. It was spring. So we were enjoying the weather. And that was all you could do is be outside. You couldn't be inside. So, you know, we, we discovered pretty quickly that uh, we thought, well, we're going to do this for about four or five weeks. 44 weeks later, we, oh, really? we did 44 weeks of Thursday night shows from our living room. We took two weeks off. I think around week 37, we decided that we were going to go on a road trip. And we drove to Dallas and drove to uh, Arizona. And then we actually ended up flying home because I was driving my mom's car down so she could have it in Arizona. So we took two weeks off and we came back and people were like, where have you been? You know, like, we miss it. We miss it. I thought, oh, you miss it. We've been doing this for 37 weeks. You actually still enjoy this? But it was something that we found that there was a community of people that just would sign in every week and watch. And like, people would write me and say, what, what's the cocktail for tonight's show? And we would have this like small text ring of, of friends that I would say, well, tonight we're going to do, we're going to do Palomas. Or, you know, we're going to do hand-squeezed fresh lime margaritas, and this is the tequila we're using. And we'd all have these cocktails together, you know, virtually, of course, but uh, it became something that we actually got us through the entire pandemic, like sort of with some great perspective about silver linings. Wonderful, generous people out there that we were getting grocery money from people that we barely knew, you know, that would just send us, you know, $20, $30 every week, just like, thanks for the music. 
you know, you guys brighten my spirits every Thursday. Couldn't get through the week without Thursday. You know, it was like this thing that we were just blown away by. And now I know how to do Facebook Live and YouTube and implement them together and, you know, and it's like, and use them and use them, I think, to a, a pretty full capacity from a guy that's uh, an analog guy. I was a guy that learned how to record on tape and well, not Pro Tools or not digital audio workstations. So this was a whole new platform for me to figure out. What I found with the Facebook and the concerts that people were doing, and I turned into some, I didn't catch you guys, unfortunately, and I didn't get quite frankly set and become a regular anywhere but i was bouncing around i noticed that even people like i don't know james taylor would release stuff and it just got to be a thing and the fact that you had a following is what music to me is all about it can be inspiring and healing and i mean i think every person that is an artist in any form if that art is taken away and that's sort of what defines you as a person, that's what you've been doing, you needed to figure out how you could at least express your creativity and your outlet and get it out to people because everybody was starving for, you know, I just want to get on a stage or I just want to go play a show. And, you know, I can only imagine someone like a James Taylor who, that guy plays for thousands of people. Every tour, that guy, is, you know, he'd sell out the Coronado, right? I'm sure. Right. In days. James Taylor. Yeah. I worked out next to him at Illinois State one time. Did you really? I did. He was in very good shape. Well, no, he's he's got a thing on YouTube actually talking about his recovery, yeah. uh, where he talks about being physical, physically active is crucial. 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 1,000% I agree with him. I mean, I'm still playing basketball three days a week, you know, like working out five days a week because it's great for my brain, you know. It's as much for my brain as it is for my body, you know. So, And that's what I found, too, even being locked in is like, you know, Every day would be, hey, we did nine miles today. We did 10 miles today. Then we'd we'd go to Arizona. We did 15 and we hiked, you know, we hiked up a mountain. We did 98 floors. And, you know, it was like, well, if we can't, you know, if we can't go play shows, we can at least better ourselves. So when we come out of this, because, you know, certain point you're like, I don't see the light at the end of the tunnel here. It's very dim at least, you know, so, but we will come out of this at some point. Do you want to be worse off or do you want to be better? I took that approach as like, well, we have this time now that we've never had before to focus on sort of the inner workings of my relationship with Kelly or my relationship with my kids or my relationship even with my business. And I took that as a real opportunity to just go in and go deep into like, hey, how about life insurance policies? You know, I had one, but why not have two? And instead of having my children as the beneficiaries of the second one, why don't I have Kelly and my children, you know, like all these things and, and just different orphaned money market accounts that I was like, oh, I have these things floating over here. Why don't we pull all the, I would have never done that based on our touring schedule. You know, I just never had the time to sit down and focus on those things. And then, you know, having a, a Zoom meeting with a friend of mine who works for Northwestern Mutual, and he's like giving me 10,000 ideas of what to do with my money. Not that I have a lot of it. Well, I was going to talk about an allowance going back in the other direction. Yeah, the allowance goes back to your dad at a certain point. I don't know that this is going to work out. Yeah, I understand that. I think, yeah, it's like Social Security. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it checks in the mail. Yeah. Checks in <laughs> Thank, the mail. Thanks very much. Just go check the mailbox every day. Well, but that's, I mean, there were a lot of people who did that. I didn't do that much of that. However, the element in many ways of this podcast is a result of the same sort of thing. We as a group sat down and looked at ourselves and said, okay, what else can we do? And what other revenue streams could we have? Where can we contribute? Where else could we make a difference? And as we talked about at the beginning, um, you know, the idea of this podcast is to talk about taking that negative and making it 
positive, fording that river, yeah. fording that rock river. And that's really what we want to focus on. And, you know, this will time this thing. But even with the Ukrainian war, you're seeing people step up in Poland and Hungary and other places with great generosity and the European alliance coming together in a way that I'm sure Putin never expected. So with hardship, there are typically people rise to that occasion. Going back to your beginnings, I was interested in that, and we like to talk about that with people. Did you have any formal musical training, or you mentioned the yeah. sound engineer? When I was young, young, you know, four or five, uh, Trinity Lutheran Church actually was sort of a mainstay uh, in, in my life musically. Both my grandparents were uh, choir directors in the church, and I discovered that I could sing. I didn't have any formal training, but I had a good ear to, to picking it up, and I, I think a pretty decent tone to my voice as a young kid. And then I progressed into, I think, 13 or 14. Um, I was playing trumpet in the middle school jazz band, and a gentleman by the name of uh, Dan, he played guitar in the jazz band. Dan O'Brien was his name, and uh, he played Sweet Child of Mine. And I looked over and... I thought to myself, he's my age, he's my peer, and it sound, he sounds like Slash playing this guitar. I want to play guitar. So I went home, and the next day I told my dad, I said, hey, you know, I think I really would like to play guitar. Well, thankfully, he had a few laying around. The next day I had a, uh, it was a Greco Super Real Les Paul, which is a, a, knockoff, a Japanese knockoff of a, uh, of a 59 burst Les Paul. But I, I thought it was great, you know. Up the street lived a guy by the name of Tim Rowe. He's in a band called Tim Rowe and the Flying Saucers. He's kind of a quirky, eccentric, uh, guitar, you know, crazy guy. And he, I said, hey, would you, would you give guitar lessons? And he said, well, yeah. It's 10 bucks for an hour. Okay. 10 bucks for, 10 an, bucks hour. for an hour. So I went and... Uh, he, would, he taught me chords, he taught me licks. He, it wasn't a real theory-based knowledge, but it was a lot of uh, using your ear and figuring out just the basics of guitar, and then I would just go home and sit. And I remember having a cassette deck, and I would fast forward, and it was, it was just the technology just come out where you could say you wanted to skip to the next song. The tape would find the silence and it would stop it. You know, sometimes it was a break in the song, but most times it was the next song. And I would fast forward and you could scrub, you know, so you could hold it down just lightly and scrub through the song. So I would just learn all these songs. Like I learned Led Zeppelin four by ear, you know, at, at 14 years old. I probably played it horribly, but... So that was then, then shift even further. So then I, I really... I really focused on guitar for a solid year and a half. Like my, my brother's, my older brother, he's 18 months older. He was a year ahead of me in school. His friends would come over and go, what's wrong with your brother? And he's like, what do you mean? He's like, man, he just sits in his room, and plays guitar all the time. Is that really what he does? He's like, yeah, he just loves it. He comes out every once in a while, shoots some hoops and goes and plays golf. And But yeah, at night he's just playing guitar. And then I discovered that if you play guitar, the girl that wouldn't talk to you in school, suddenly you go play a show and you play guitar and you sing, the girl talks to you, well, there's more motivation to keep playing guitar. The motivation of most high school musicians. Yeah, like... There's always a lady in the house. It wasn't my focus to be better for any sort of technical aspect. It was better to be, like, I wanted to be better so I could talk to the pretty girl, you know? And, and uh, then... Does she live in Naperville, by the way? Uh, many of them do, Ed, Dad. Many of them do. Uh, there's Naperville's full of nice women. And... Some friends from Rockford. From yeah. And uh, so, you know, I, and then I fast forward through high school. I actually, I was in choir. So 
it was my late in my sophomore year. My grades weren't very great. I was focused on, you know, hey, I'm just going to get in a band, you know, just who cares about college? No, let me stop you. Did you have a band in high school that you formed or were I did. a part of? I did. I had a band. Uh, we formed the band in my freshman year, and it was called uh, Middle Child. And we were very successful around uh, the Cherry Lounge market out at the mall. We play, We would rent out the basement of the Cherry Lounge and we'd put on these shows and we would go all out. I mean, full PA, light rig. We would put up backdrops and, you know, we would, and we would spend, in, in, we'd get there at noon and probably be ready to go by seven, you know, and then doors would open at eight and then all, you know, an all ages show was unhurt. So we had these all ages shows out at Cherry Lounge and then there was a club on North Main uh, called Energy and uh, we would play there. There, there was very few, um, but yeah, I had a band called Middle Child and then my junior year, um, I got into a band with some older guys uh, that they were 23 and 30 and me and Pete Barr, the drummer, uh, who I'd played with in Middle Child, we left Middle Child to go play with a band that we called Fan Club. And uh, we, that was our, we wrote original songs in Fan Club. So we did like half originals, half covers. And that was like a really eye-opening experience to like learning how to write tunes, like how to fabricate songs. Um, something that I, I would watch my dad do, but I never knew, you know, I didn't understand the process. Late in my sophomore year, my, my counselor said, hey, uh, just kind of noticed your uh, academics aren't very good. Maybe we should put you in some classes that you might excel in instead of these classes that we feel like you're just kind of, you know, floundering. I know you like music a lot. So how about you get into a choir class, a theater class, and a magical choir class? We could really stack your grades. You know, might even get you into college one day. Yeah, sure, sure. So I go in and end up really enjoying singing in the Madrigal Choir, really end up singing uh, in the choir. Our, our teacher, uh, Catherine Engel Terasaki was her name, and she's still around. She just got into, inducted the RPS 205 Hall of Fame. She invited me out to the dinner, brought my mom, so I'm, as I'm sure you're familiar with mom. You know, it ended up raising my GPA to over a, a three-point. That's a fantastic story where a counselor just took the time. Yeah. Well, she knew, like, I was not a student, you know, I was not an, academia was not a thing Algebra and geometry and chemistry were not your thing. You just made my my spine quiver with algebra. I took algebra twice in summer school, and then once my senior year at night school at Roosevelt, and I passed it with a C minus to graduate. Otherwise, not graduating. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So stacking up the choir classes and the theater class was a good thing. And then... Uh, lo and behold, my grandfather is a uh, vocal instructor, so I get an opportunity to go try out for a uh, classical voice scholarship at Illinois State University. Really? A yeah. classical voice? Classical voice. Which means what? Which means I have no idea what I'm doing, which means I have no idea what it means. I'm not singing pop tunes or rock. This is not that at all. This is... Um, uncharted territory for me and i was like okay well so what are the stipulations of this audition well you have to sing two songs in a foreign language and then one classical american piece oh no so i go to my grandfather i said i don't know this is i need to i'm gonna 
do this Latin piece, you know? So I did uh, two songs in Latin, and then I did one American piece, and I studied with him for about three months, and then uh, my dad, my grandfather, and I, three generations of Nielsen, drove down to Illinois State, and I sang in a room about this size, which if you're listening, uh, just to give you perspective, it's probably about uh, 12 feet across and maybe 16 long, and uh, it was about that, and there were three chairs with the three professors looking super intimidating, staring at me like, well, come on, kid. I could picture them all having like this, the most proper of British accents. Well, boy, you know, and I'm like, ah, and I ended up getting a a classical voice scholarship to go to Illinois State. And uh, yeah, well, sort of. But at that point, I realized like, I have no idea what I'm doing. What does this mean? And I didn't know. What, what does classical voice mean to you? What does that mean? Classical voice performance. What does that mean to you? It means either opera or Broadway musicals. Uh-huh. And that's about it. Yeah, for a little shy rock and roll kid coming out of Rockford, Illinois, that was a terrible path. So I learned how to sing properly. You know, I had a, a really great instructor, actually, and I, in, in hindsight, um, from a technical learning standpoint from singing. He was fantastic. Alphonse Anderson was his name. This is where you learn breathing techniques yeah, yeah. and how to enunciate yeah. and project yeah. and all those things. Exactly. So that then, uh, I did that. I was there for three years. And what I realized in those three years is I didn't want to be in opera, nor did I want to go on Broadway. <laughs> you figured out opera and, was and, and nor did I want to be a classroom teacher. You know, And those were kind of the three avenues that I felt like were presenting themselves with that sort of major. So I ended up uh, doing some research, and I, I ended up going to school for uh, recording engineering because I knew that I wanted to be in music somehow. I wasn't sure. College sort of, for me, was a, a foggy experience of freedom and, like, drugs were there and beer you know and women and all these fun things that i found myself really like gravitating you came out of your bedroom so to speak yeah and and like man had a whole like whole campus of parties to go see what those bedrooms i can relate to that college experience that was pretty much summed up mine yeah it was an amazing time if there wasn't uh money and education on the line i would have gotten straight a's as a party guy i did very well and uh, it was great. I mean, honestly, it led me to know, like, getting then into, so this would be technically my senior year, but actually it was just a two-year program for uh, recording engineering. I got I moved down to Orlando, Florida, uh, just me and a roommate that I had at Illinois State. We went down there not knowing anyone, and it was just the two of us. He ended up graduating with straight A's, and, and I did as well, um, and got out of school. And onto it, yeah, in recording. I had a, I have a degree in recording engineering. Now, did you get... A degree from Illinois State? No, no, no. I just I got a I got a thank you. Uh, please don't come back. Thanks, you're great. Yeah, thanks for the donation. Yeah, I made it out, but I didn't make it out with any sort of piece of paper saying that I did anything good there, which was fine. I mean, I'll go back someday and visit. You know, I've obviously listened to you and seen you play. God only knows how many times. Uh, but I've always been oppressed by the fact that. I mean, I personally have thought of the fact this guy knows how to sing, right? I mean, the way you cover chords and your range and and how you enunciate and things. And I just, I've always been impressed by that. And uh, and that clearly, now that's cleared up for me. I mean, that technical skills you developed, they're a problem. Yeah, you know, it's it's an interesting thing that I feel like there's, 
certain singers out there that, uh, and I've talked with a bunch of them over the you know course of, of touring. They're like, how do you keep your voice in shape on the road when you're playing every night? You know, like in Europe, we did 28 shows in 31 days. You know, in each show, we were headlining each show. So we're doing two plus hours a night, which is our songs don't have a lot of vocal breaks, you know? So I'm singing two hours a night, getting four or five hours of sleep, driving in a van with the heat blowing or the air going, you no, know? No, let me stop you for a second. This was a tour of Europe you guys did. This was the Rusted Hearts. Yes. And you did this four years ago, uh, five years ago? This was 2017 we did. And then we did another tour in 2019 as well of Europe. So you did two tours of Europe. Yeah. But this is 28 shows in 30 days? 31 days, yeah. 31. It was, it was a lot. And driving... You know, people are like, oh, Europe's great. You know, the greatest thing about touring Europe is everything's so close. Uh, unless you had our booking agent who routed us in every direction possible. I mean, we were we were crossing Spain, you know, in a, in a day, you know, seven hours. Oh, we, we went from Le Bouy, France. We had to get up at 7 a.m. to a load-in in, in uh, Valle Sestorius, uh, Spain by 6 p.m., and we drove eight and a half hours to get there, and then we get there, and you're like, uh, okay, now we're here. Okay, set up and sound check, and then we'll drive you down to your hotel. And then the show doesn't start till around 11 p.m. You're like, okay, well, here we go, you know? And it was, I mean, going back to this is how you keep your voices, you you have to learn how to sing properly, you know, like otherwise, I mean, singing 28 shows in 31 days, you're probably going to blow it out at some point and it's going to go. And I've had my voice leave me a few times, uh, generally in the winter months of uh, the Midwest when it's like negative 20 and uh, it's so dry that everything just cracks and everything breaks and everything falls apart. Uh, that's when my voice usually falls apart. So, so you you did that intensity, and um, how was it for the other for the guys? I always think of this. Uh, you know, it's always Miles and the boys are playing at Mary's or playing wherever. I just shorthand call you Miles and the boys, uh, which I'm not sure McMahon especially would like. So, what was it like for them? Did they? You know, they're getting up and they're playing. I don't think the fatigue factor set in as much for them as because they're generally across the musical board is mostly harmonies singers right. so they're they're able to you know they're they're not blowing it out you know they're they're not singing the whole time they're adding here and there but it's still a physical grind you know you're you're getting four hours of sleep a night and the thing about europe man people are having fun so you know you have all these people to your show well after the show they want to have drinks with you well, you're only in Europe once or maybe twice. So you want to stay up and have some drinks, you know? So you you stay up and then next thing you know, what could have been a six-hour night of sleep is four. So, you know, some self-induced uh, hardships, but uh, ultimately a um, lot of water. Uh, rest is the only thing that helps your voice. Uh, humidifiers are great. I always try. I have a little mini travel humidifier for hotel rooms because hotel rooms are, generally speaking, super dry. You know, cough drops, uh, rumplements. That's for anyone over 21 who doesn't have a drinking problem. I mean, you're very then very conscious. Well, let me put it this way. If I've always known about you and the guys. You all seem to be craftsmen. Yeah. yeah, I think we pride ourselves on that. And I think that's sort of what's lent itself to the five guys that we are. Is you know, It hasn't always been these same five guys. Now it's been these same five guys for the last 10 years, which is kind of commendable uh i'll pat those guys on the back they're not here to do that which i'm sure a few of them would uh but you know just everybody takes pride in in being a good musician you know and like we work on 
the stuff and and we really care you know it's like well, i don't go out there and like hack it up you know like and and today everyone's got a cell phone so everyone's videoing or audio taping or you know putting a clip of you up like oh here here's this band you should check them out well if it sounds terrible and it's not good and you guys are all out of pitch or someone's too hammered to play or or whatnot it's immediate i mean it's within the next 2 minutes it's going to be on the internet and someone's going to go ugh what was that you were seeing they were that sounded horrible kind of like i know it's like cliche but it's like uh, you have to put your best foot forward all the time especially now more than ever because everybody's watching Social media is pretty relentless. One of the things I've, I've always enjoyed pre-COVID was, and I don't know how many times I did this, I saw you at uh, Fitzgerald's and Berwyn and Lincoln Hall we talked about, but Space was a big deal. There's a great music venue in Evanston, Illinois yeah, called Space. Beautiful place. And even down in Bloomington, Indiana, where I went to school once, and one time over in Tampa, that was kind of happenstance as I happened to be in Florida. I learned to enjoy you guys more when you were playing out of town than playing in town. And I've always tried to figure it out, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, but it just seemed to me the in-town crowd had certain expectations of certain songs were going to get played, you know, they, that they'd heard from 10 or 12 years ago or, you know, and you guys may have moved on from them, those songs. Sure. Uh, is that accurate or, I mean... You, I mean, we're lucky we have a, a great fan base in Rockford of loyal people that su have supported us for years, but I also feel like there's a, well, we can see them next week or... Well, you know, I'll run into him at the YMCA or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. You know, we're, we're just the local guys, which is, you know, we're, we're, we're not that when we go somewhere else. We're the band that's not from there, which is kind of exciting because we roll in and it's like, man, you guys haven't been here in three months. We were so excited. We got tickets two months ago and we just had it on our calendar. We couldn't wait to see you, you know. So I think seeing us out of town, you get a true sense of, of what it's like to see us from a fan perspective, that's not necessarily a friend or a local perspective, you know, where I think there are expectations for us, you know, locally, where it's like, you guys play that, uh, do that one Petty Jam, you know, and you're like, well, we don't always want to just play Tom Petty. You know, I mean, I love Tom Petty, don't get me wrong. I mean, I've been studying him all week, getting ready for a show we have coming up, but like, I kind of want to do our new songs that I wrote, you know? So, you know, I mean, it, it, it's, it's probably the same thing that every single musician who's had any success with a song. You know, I think that, uh, I think the Bullet Boys opened up for Cheap Trick at the Metro. It was the Metro Center, not the BMO at the time. And they had a song called Smooth Up In Ya. Well, they played it like third in their set. It was their only hit. They had a 45-minute opening set. Well, you don't play your hit third in. Because then you've just, there you go. That's the highlight. There, you, you peaked way too early. So they booed them off the stage, actually. Really? Yeah. Rockford was like su super brutal to them. They booed them off the stage. But I thought to myself, well, a really quick solution to not getting booed off the stage is you keep your hit song for the end. Because then people are all like, yes, this one. You know, like, so you could avoid the booing by just building up to that hit song. Uh, and I, not that we have any hit songs, we have some crowd, we have some fan favorites, some crowd favorites, and uh, you know we don't want to neglect them. But just you know, you put out a new record. There's 12 new songs that you have to sort of 
get to or learn and figure out how you do the dance live and you know with the band so there's certain songs that just go away and it's it's not even intentional half the time you know i feel like our set list sometimes we leave a song off and people are like i haven't heard that song in so long you guys just don't play it anymore i was like oh i forgot about that song oh we'll add it to the set tonight you know that happens all the time so seeing us out of town is is for me always fun too because that's that's when you get your your most genuine reaction to because you don't have friends that are like you guys are great well yeah i mean do you mean that or just are you just blowing smoke because we're friends that really does explain it because i mean i can see i mean i've known i've heard people come up to you or dan or whatever at a place and say are you guys going to do any Beatles songs tonight yeah Right? I mean, you, you yeah. do great Beatle covers. Yeah. Or are you going to do Surrender by Cheap Trick? And, yeah. you know, you do the slow version. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that must be in a way, okay, fine, we'll do it. It's a blessing and a curse, it's right? It's a blessing I mean, and a curse. It's like the fact that people love your take on a cover tune is amazing. But then it's also like, well, now they're expecting it, you know? I don't like when people expect anything, you know, it's like, I don't want, I don't want any expectations, you know, especially like in my personal life, you know, <laughs> but uh, no, it is that way. You know, you, you have like, I can only imagine a band that, uh, and I'm trying to think of a good band that has done a cover that suddenly becomes, they didn't even, people don't even know it's a cover, right? Like, I can't think of one offhand. Like Mellon Camp did a cover of a Van Morrison tune. Yeah. Wild Nights. Wild Nights. Yeah. And he was once on a show complaining about the fact every night I have to play Wild Nights. I didn't write it. He didn't even want to use Van. He didn't credit Van Morrison. He just said, I, I, I'll play it. But honestly, I just really, I'd rather not. Yeah, now when you wonder, like, okay, Mellencamp in that situation, was that a record label telling him, hey, we need another song on this record that's got, because that was what I I think was one of the singles. Yeah, it was with Michelle uh, DiNigicello. I can't I'm not sure who it was. She's the cool, she's the great bass player. Uh, there was some agreement with the record. You're right, because it was a record company, and there was an agreement they would record a tune together. And- so they needed something. They didn't hear a hit. Well, they knew this song could be a hit, especially with, you know, Mellencamp and then her singing on it and playing bass on it because she looks great. She sounds great. You know, this is a good thing. And then all of a sudden he's like, oh, now I got to play this song all the time. Well, it's a blessing and a curse because I'm sure that song made him a decent amount of money. And I'm sure it made Van Morrison uh, even more money, but I'm sure it made him, you know, from a performance standpoint, I'm sure performance royalties on that song made him a bunch of money. We're taking a break right now. It's time to refill our bank account. We'd like to thank the Eckberg Insurance Group for supporting the Elements Ford the Rock podcast. Please go to Eckberg.com to connect with Tyler Pickering. He'll work with you on all your insurance needs, whether they be personal, business, or not-for-profit. Once again, go to Eckberg.com for all your insurance needs. So let's talk about that just for a second, because uh, it, here at the uh, Rock the River Element podcast, we are capitalist, and we want to plug stuff and make you as much money off oh, of yeah, this yeah. as possible. So how does a band today in this world of streaming, uh, we know you know Taylor Swift threw down the gauntlet to the streaming group. So yeah, good for her. She, she was able to. Yeah, she was able to do that. But how does somebody in your position, you and the rest of the hearts, you've got a website, you've got merch. How do you guys go about it? Well, I mean, 
streaming makes us relatively no money. Um, you know, the payout on streaming is point zero zero five fourths of a cent. You know, I mean, it's it's like it's it's a ridiculous number. We had a song on our last record that came out in 2019 that uh, in the first eight, nine months of it being out, uh, maybe not even that long, 750,000 streams. Really? You'd think that was, whew, think man, we are going to be rich. I'm taking you to the Bahamas, Dad. Right. No, no. That was about a $549 check. We barely get into Morton's. We barely get on the plane with one ticket and you in my bag. God, that's unbelievable. So, 750,000 streams, yeah. a little over 500 bucks. Yeah, I mean, so good for Taylor Swift. You know, she can say, hey, no, you're not, take me down. I'm not in a position to do that. I am in a position that I need streaming services because I need people to find our music. I need to be on them because I need people to, I need the awareness. I need the people to see me. I need people to go, oh, this was, a, you know, I, an algorithm that was based on this. All of a sudden I was down the wormhole and your song, Heavy Metal, came on because I was on uh, Gregory Allen Isaacoff radio or whatever it is, you know. Um, so suddenly I show up there based on some algorithm that they've figured out that I in some way sound in some fashion and some small sense of a song, I sound like Gregory Allen Isaacoff in one of these tunes, and I'm in his algorithm. I'm on his playlist suddenly. So I have to be on them. Uh, I would love to not uh, in some ways. Uh, you know, Spotify to me is, um, it's highway robbery. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's absurd the amount of money that the company makes uh, off of the artist's Without the artist, that company doesn't even have a platform. So you would think maybe you would try to even the playing field a little bit on the pay scale side to help the artists out so they'd be a little more user-friendly and a little more friendly to, you know, to contribute and, and to work together. But the way we make money is we get in the van and we bring vinyl records into a venue. We bring T-shirts. Uh, we bring posters. We bring we bring our music. We hopefully get people to show up. You know, that's how we make the bulk of our money is, is unfortunately, uh, when you're tired, you got to keep going. You know, that's that's our biggest thing is like, we just, we get in, we're, we're dumb enough to drive 17 hours for a show. And then after the show, we'll drive eight hours to the next, you know, we're like, okay, well, uh, I mean... There's a small pot of gold at the end of that rainbow over there off of I-44, you know, and we're going to go get it. The way we make money is we try to direct as many people directly to milesnielsen.com as possible because that's where you pick up things directly from us as the artist. So it's milesnielsen.com. Yeah. And on that site, you've got your tour dates, your merchandise, yeah. well, CDs, vinyl. We got all that stuff. Yeah, we have a full. We have a pretty good a selection of things. We we employ a lot of local art, like Joe Tallman, who's an illustrator, um, screen printer here in town. We hire him three times a year, probably to create a, a unique graphic for a show. And then he screen prints and hand numbers. And we'd sell those on the site. We usually sell those at the venues. People get by them, they get them signed, they get them framed. Uh, just a, a neat way to commemorate a show. And that's the best way for us to make the money is is getting people directly to our mom and pop shop. You know, that's, that's our store. Because, I mean, there are no record stores anymore. Well, Vinyl actually is really successful these days. Um, people love, I mean, vinyl, I think in the last five years has, has grown 70%. Uh, and that's that's maybe give or take a few percentages on that. Correct me if I'm wrong at some point and hit a, you know, 
due to uh, you know due to false information you can exclude that from this you can edit that out it's somewhere around there you know so vinyl is is really i mean there's a back order of vinyl uh, i think 6 months is is your if you're putting out a record right now this is this is a fun fact of if say you have a record that's going to be mixed and mastered and going to be done in a month and a half and your artwork's pretty close to completion well you're not going to get vinyl when your record's ready to be released cuz there's 6 month waiting time for this thing to come out so you're like now you have to time your release in accordance with how quickly the you know the duplication factory the pressing facility can get your vinyl pressed packaged and sent to you well you, now you have to wait 6 months to release your record unless you're willing to just put it out on digitally or and on CD which CD's almost becoming archaic as well so now is that vinyl is that the supply line it's no. everything yeah it's it's supply line it it's getting the raw materials to make the vinyl it's every, it's it's everything we're dealing with uh, on a grand scale on the micro scale for vinyl so you know whether it's your petroleum that's creating you know like i mean it's it's down to everything you're you're waiting on every step of the process and there's only so many vinyl pressing plants in the world uh, the last uh, Obohoy that we put out in 2019, we pressed that in the Czech Republic. Why? Because uh, they were able to do it. They had a good product. The The test pressings actually were cut, the lathe and was cut here in the States by a guy in Chicago. And then he takes that, sends me the test pressing. I approve test pressing or disapprove of test pressing. We go back to him. He cuts, recuts it. I approve the second one, send test pressing to the Czech Republic, where then they press it along with the graphic, the sleeves and all. And then they shrink wrap it and send it and ship it here. You know, 20 years ago, whatever, you go to Chicago and there are a half dozen places. No, no, there's, uh, there's, there's United. Um, I mean, there's, there's a, there's a few in, in the States. There's probably half a dozen. In all the States? In all the States. Right. Yeah. Like Jack White from the White Stripes, you know, Jack White from, he owns uh, a place in Nashville, Third Man Records. They have their own t uh, pressing facility there. And actually, I just read an article yesterday, him saying, this is a note to the major record labels out there, start your own vinyl pressing company. You know, we're, we're backed up over here. We're doing our own thing, which they should do it. You know, they have all this money. Invest in, you know, invest in something. Because if you're waiting six to eight months, how many artists or records are being put back on the shelves, you know, and not being released because you're waiting so long for them to come out? I mean, for me, it's like when I get done recording a record and getting it ready for release, I'm by the time it hits release date, I'm already moving on to writing new songs. You know. Well, let's talk about that. The, the writing process. I I always find the creative process fascinating. Are you one of those guys who care, carries around a little notebook and you get an idea and you write it down, or do you decide, okay, I want to do an album, so over the next four weeks or next three months, I'm going to write ten songs? Or mm, I wish I had it figured out. I, I carry around a notebook. I carry around. I have uh, fifty-two new things on my phone, you know, that are, I mean, they, they can start as simple as uh, just a, you know, a recording of something that goes like this. It's like... I'm working on this right now. Just some notes on a guitar? Just some notes on a guitar. I like the little groove. I, I kind of feel like it has this, like, sort of... Uh, 
I don't know, Leon, it's got this like nice like Leon Bridges sort of chord progression mixed in with like I could see sort of like I'm, I was a fan of Maxwell, you know, like there was a record that Maxwell put out. I was like, oh, I could kind of see where this could turn into like a little bit of a soul sort of Americana song. So that that's just, you know, and then, you know, the following, I, for some reason, I was like, okay, well... Not, you know, these are little ideas, and, and I have 53 of them that I've done in the last year, you know, that are bits. Once every couple of weeks, I'll go through and just log all them and name them and say, so I can quickly go, okay, that's the, that's the Maxwell, you know, Leon Bridges vibe, and I'll just name it something like that, so I can quickly find it, you know, so archiving and, and just, you know, being a little bit more proactive with my I just, those are just little voice memos, but all, and then some of them are full songs. You know, I'll sit down with a guitar and I'm like, oh, I've got this idea, and suddenly you realize you like 15 minutes, you've written an entire song. And and I know you had asked me about the song Dear Kentucky. Well, Kentucky, Kentucky. And that was a song I wrote. I mean, within 15 minutes. Yeah, I mean, some some songs just come to you, you know, and they just they're like. I've heard different people say, you know, you're just trying to hold on. You're like, you're getting it from, you're like the conduit that's just like able to just, you know, yeah, you're channeling it and you're getting it from somewhere. And, and I mean, I think that is true. Uh, sometimes I'm like, I don't know where that song came from at all. I mean, I do know where it came from in my mind, but where was the melody? Where are these lyrics, you know, where is this whole thing coming from? And, it, and it's 15 minutes later, I was like, wow, that was one of the easiest songs I've ever written. Sweet little southern dreams. Well, the ashtrays are smiling as I try to fill them And the she wins every time Well, Kentucky, Kentucky, you make it so easy Kentucky, you're killing me Dear Kentucky, you're killing me well now what were you after now i'm a disaster who needs looking after let's hang from the rafters and sing Kentucky, Kentucky, oh, why do you want me? And why do I lay at your feet? All this talk about bluegrass and I'm seeing green In Lexington I was obscene Well, Kentucky, Kentucky, you make it so easy Kentucky, you're killing me Dear Kentucky, you're killing me. Dear Kentucky, you're killing me. Yeah, yeah. Well, Kentucky's really, you know. And I really, I went to school in a college town, and and it damn near killed me. And that was kind of yeah, uh, yeah. relate to Lexington and Kentucky. I like that. So when you guys get in a studio. Have you got it sorted out, or is there that back that I think we all know a little bit more about studio stuff, or at least how the Beatles did it towards the end after watching, yeah. you know, Peter Jackson's tribute. But do you guys play back and forth? Uh, I mean, does Dan have something or Adam? Oh, yeah, know? yeah. Um, I never really want to, I mean, because I feel like the guys in my band are like, they're 
they could be in a band. They could be a, their own writers. They, you know, they do write their own stuff. But I, I don't want to limit them to just, hey, here's this is play it like this. I don't want to do that. I mean, that's not why we're in a band. If I was going to do that, I would just hire these guys to go on tour with me and you know never have a band. But I feel like having a band, I show up with an idea which kind of a skeleton, and you know, here's here's the here's the skeleton. Now let's put you know let's put the organs and the skin and you know and all the all the finishing touches to the song. And I think that's where having a band, you know, it's like someone will say, well, hey, you could change this, you know, this this chord, that major chord right there. Actually, you know, if you if you change it to a minor, it could lead itself into this, into the bridge better this way. Or, or here's a little guitar line that I feel like would be a nice hook that counteracts the melody or, you know. So the band is very crucial to the building of, of the songs for the Rusted Hearts, for sure. This goes back to you guys being live. Is it audio track? What, what is the deal in Chicago? I, no, audio tree. That, I, you know, that concert, I mean, I watched that last night, and I'm thinking, this really is like mm-hmm. watching a live concert. Those guys own Shubas and Lincoln Hall. Yeah. Or, but uh, I would encourage anybody to go look that up the audio tree is great there's tons of show i mean there's tons of artists on there too i mean they're we're trying to get on there again with our next record so hopefully that happens you know but i mean they're busy they're they're booked out a lot so you have to get a hold of them early on in the process and uh they do a great job so what they do is they have like a three or four camera shoot they do full audio you know i mean it's it's a multi-tracked show and basically there's a host and he leads you in in and out of segments and you you treat it like it's a half hour show that's what i was impressed by it just seemed to me that not unlike especially lincoln hall just yeah. top notch sound and yeah equipment yeah and i mean it's a state-of-the-art studio with, they know what they're yeah. doing yeah. yeah it's super professional yeah that's got to be so much better to play in now on your website i I can't remember your soul references and influences and things. But do you consider yourself Americana or... I would say it's more Americana than any, you know. I mean, I hear like, I hear, oh, you guys are one of my favorite klezmer bands. (laughs) What bands? Klezmer. It's a genre that that no one really in today's, you know, you, you know Bruce Hammond. Right. Bruce Hammond always references us as, oh, you guys are one of my favorite klezmer bands. Well, that's an old term that uh, I know what he means, you know, because I grew up around music. I was like, wow. But because we'll implement things like accordion, clarinet, uh, you know, mellotron, you know, we we go into, we'll go into these different spacey sections of our tunes. We sort of get a little out and then come back to the Americana aspect of things. And, uh, you know, so personally, my genre is uh, cosmic pop Americana. Cosmic pop Americana. I don't know. I like that. You know, yeah. I mean, we get into like the Pink Floyd realm. We'll also get into, you know, say your your Tom Petty realm, which is heavy Americana, and then you get into the pop world of you know certain songs, certain choruses have a pop feel. So, cosmic pop Americana does that work? Yeah. Is that a thing we could do? I think that we think should we start. Did it. If nothing else, it. it starts here today. Yeah, it starts now. We're forging. We're forging that. Genre. We're forging that. One of my favorite songs I came across last night was "Hey Hey Hey," which is you wrote. I don't know how long ago. Uh, Twelve years ago, thirteen years ago, probably now. And uh, I, and I bring it up because this uh, "Hey Hey Hey," and then the next line is "Where do we go from here?" And it, it goes back to COVID in my mind and relationships that people have had so many people have been asking that question where do we go from here yeah so uh let me ask that question i know you guys are touring 
like in March, you're going south, you're going to Phoenix and stuff. Like that. Yeah, uh, where where we're going from here is ho- hopefully better places than we've been the last two years uh, physically. Um, I know for us, you know, we have a bunch of shows coming up, but uh, the way I look at music is, you know, I I think that through COVID, through the whole being locked in, through the whole thing is, I would hope that we don't lose sight of the perspective that all these things can be taken away pretty quickly. And what is it that we do? You know, we provide, hopefully, some joy for people, you know, a release, an outlet, you know. Um, I don't want our music to be something that that makes people angry, you know. I want to be the the beacon of hope for people that, uh, you know, like when you come out to our show, I want you to leave thinking like, I feel lighter, I feel better, I feel happier, I, I was around people. I remember early on people saying like, well, we're never going to shake hands again. We're never going to hug people again. How are you going to be okay with that? I'm like, who says we're not going to do that? I mean, you know, when I got vaccinated, I was like, I'm going licking doorknobs, man. I'm, I'm, I'm shaking all the hands, you know. I'm, I'm, li- I'm letting my dog lick my face, whatever. I'm hugging. I mean, when you go up and hug someone that you haven't seen in two years, there is a chemistry and there's an energy that your bodies connect with. It's, it's undeniable. And I mean, I think where do we go from here? Hopefully we go to a place that we can remember how it felt to not have these things. So we have a little bit better of an outlook to say like, you know, remember when we couldn't do these things? Let's have a, let's have a good perspective and let, let's really think about what we like living in the moment of I'm at a show, I'm able to play music. I'm able to look out and see people that I love seeing. I'm able to see people that are, they're smiling, they're singing along and I'm on stage with guys that I've been in a band with for 10 years, you know? I mean, I think we've survived the thing okay, but I don't want to lose sight of, uh, you know, all the things that we learned while we weren't doing it, which was, hey, we're pretty damn lucky to do what we do. And even if our bank accounts weren't real lucky for a while, you know, I was thankful that we got some unemployment, you know, which was a thing that artists never had before. I mean, this is a whole thing that we never was set up for people like me to receive any sort of unemployment. But at the time, you know, I, I took advantage of it and it saved my it saved my financial life. And then as soon as we were off of it and we were back to work, well, we're back to work. So uh, the way I look at it is I'm ready for good things. And uh, I don't know, I try to have a good attitude about life and just in general. And, uh, you know, with a dad like you passing down genealogy to me, I mean, with these boyish good looks that we both have, I mean, just a pillar of just goodness, really. Goodness and, and the love of rock and roll and America, cosmic pop. And, and, and a good beer. And a good beer. A little Irish whiskey thrown in. You talked about a new album. I mean, you've got that. We have, we're trying to fit it. See, the problem is now that we've, you know, been without playing live shows, now we have to figure out how we're going to work in a recording schedule around playing a bunch of shows. So what we realize is we have some time booked. We're going to record in segments, and hopefully we like what we do have done in the segment previous to coming back to it and you know because we'll probably go a month and a half without hearing what we did then we'll come back and listen and go uh hopefully it's not uh and it's more like all right pleasantly surprised let's now we're building now we're building on from that so we're going to record the record over the next six months and hopefully have it out shortly after that but uh the ultimate thing is just get back out and start playing more because we need to. There's something about our organization does events and, and looks to bring, well, we like to call it building a community of the creative spirit in downtown and within Rockford. 
clearly there's something about finally being able to go to a restaurant, finally being able to go to a show, finally be able to go to, you guys played, I think, Prairie Street Brewing Company a couple weeks ago. Finally being able to be around people and have it be live. And, you know, and quite frankly, I'm one of those people always love live music better than the recorded stuff. Again, you've got some great live stuff on your YouTube channel. Uh, and by the way, you can check out Miles Nielsen. He does have a YouTube channel. Yes. So if you want to go there and subscribe to that, there might be some pennies there, and then move on to the milesnielsen.com website for merchandise things. We're really just growing this thing pennies at a time. Right, and, and we're going to try and stack it into dimes. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we'd like to do. I want to thank you, first of all, for joining us today. This has been great. And you're one of the leaders of the artistic community in Rockford, as, as far as we're concerned, and have helped us out over the years numerous times. And that's everything from how to put on a concert to how not to put on a concert, which we learned early on from you. So with that, that thank you for that, and thanks for all that you've done for the music scene in Rockford as being one of the kind of pillars, to go back to the words you used. One of the things we wrap up, because we want to be positive, but we also want people thinking about that future. So is there a vision you have for the Rockford region, the Midwest, the music industry, any kind of a vision, a positive thing about Rockford or that you would like to kind of close on? Well, it's actually, yes, there is, because I've been actually looking at spaces to open a music venue for the last year. Uh, What I realized over you know the last few years is we're we're very limited on our music venues not just from a size standpoint from a f- affordable standpoint but when i was younger we could put on shows like uh two guys were 16 years old and two of us were 15 and we could pull our money together and take a chance on ourselves by saying hey we're going to do a five dollar show and thankfully a place like the cherry lounge would let us rent their basement I don't see a lot of kids doing that these days, you know, putting on shows or putting on events or, you know, and what I'd love to see is just somewhere that is meant for a stage. You know, it's, it's not littered with TVs. It's not littered with beer signs. It's really focused on a stage. And um, my goal in the next few years is to find the right space. Haven't found the right space. And that's just due to size. You know, it's the pl- some of the places I look at are just way too massive. And it's, you know, as I'm a touring musician, uh, trying to think about heading up a music venue at the same time as I'm being on the road, uh, it has to be something that that is uh, feasible size-wise. You know, I want to be able to have from 75 people to, say, 350 people in a room. And, and I think if you find the right room, you can, whether it's curtains or baffles or seating or, you know, op- taking the seating out, um, focusing on a nice stage, focusing on clean lines, a good backdrop, good sound system, a good green room, just all those things that go into, to me, a good venue. I'd like to see that here in town. So if there's anybody out there that has the same vision, I'm welcoming partnerships as long as, as, long as we have one set of books you know, I, I just, I want to make sure there's a place for artists to come. I mean, there's so many young folks and so much industry in Rockford that's coming to Rockford that's younger that people want to go see entertainment. Uh, I just find myself driving to Milwaukee a lot these days, Madison, Milwaukee, um, because they're getting a lot of great shows and there's tons of venues. And, you know, thankfully we have a Mary's Place. Thankfully we have a Norwegian. Um, 
thankfully we have a Coronado, but there's really nothing that's bigger than either one of those Norwegian or Mary's place. What we're looking at right now is if you don't go to Belvedere and go to the Apollo, which I think holds about 1,200 to a thousand, somewhere in, in the 1,000 to 1,200, you either have the 110 people at Mary's place or the 80 at Norwegian, or you're at 2,300 at the Coronado. That's right. that's a pretty massive difference between 110 to 2,300. There's nowhere in between that. So there's like up and coming bands that tour through here all the time, but we can't get them because there's no space for them. You know, you and I talked about this years ago. Actually, there's a logic that you have based on your experience that you know. I think it was feed them, uh, let them drink, place to shower, you know, stay overnight, do your laundry, blah, blah, blah. That's always made the most sense to me. I've never been a, I slash the element. We've kind of been on the lookout on the side. How could we get involved in something like that? But just not had the time or the resources. But I agree with that vision. And I think it's a real simple concept of, you know, if you look back into, say, the early days of, uh, classical composers, they were hired by kings and queens to create and write these beautiful pieces. Well, at what point did the musicians become the lowest common denominator or the sludge on the ground to where you're like, just put them in the corner, feed them these scraps, give them a dollar off well drinks. And you're like, wait, we, what? The king used to hire musicians because it was revered. It was such a gift to be able to compose and create music. My whole thing is, and not that uh, I'm offering them, you know, gold and, and jewels and things of that nature, but I want to offer them a clean bed. I want them to feel human and respected. You know, that's my biggest thing. Is and, and when I go to a venue where they've got all these things in place, I'm like, you leave there, you can pay me a bit less at the end of the day. You can pay me less because of the treatment that you give me. That was, uh, for those people who are old enough to remember, Charlotte Squab yeah. was a absolute use for the folk slash singer-songwriter genre of the 70s. Uh, it was a must-stop place on the national tour. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, people would book uh, Old Town School of Folk, and then they would come to Rockford. And, and many times they would plan on, on being in Rockford on the weekend because they got put up by Bill and Karen Howard out on their farm and they had a separate bedroom. And you know they're related to me. They're related on my dad's side. Oh, I didn't know that. Another fun fact from yeah. Ford the Rock. It's the drinking game, drink. <laughs> That's right. But anyway, that was one of the reasons they all came out. Yeah. was they got home-cooked meals and they were fantastic and a party after the show and you know, shower, bedroom, clean clothes, get back on the road. Treated with respect. And tremendous respect. And quite frankly, the crowds were respectful. That's some of the biggest, uh, you know, when you find a room, and I think that's like an Evanston space or yeah, these yeah. rooms where you listen, people know when you go there, if you're talking, you're like the idiot, you know? Like, who's the, hey, and everybody in the crowd's going to go, hey, and they're going to look at you and you're going to feel shamed. You know, good for them, because then the artist doesn't have to do it. If the venue puts it in place that this is our audience and they listen and everybody paid, and I want to say a show at Evanston Space is anywhere between 25 and $45. It's not like you're going in there for $5 and seeing a band. I mean, these are national touring artists going in there and everybody wants to hear them. So give them a chance to be heard. But if you find a listening environment and you find a listening space, people... I mean, I have Kevin Kinney from Driving and Crying come here. Uh, he's coming here on April 7th uh, to the Verdi Hall. And 
we're putting him in the hall. I hosted him a year ago, and everybody's pin drop quiet because the guy's an amazing songwriter. He's in the Georgia Music Hall of Fame. Give this guy respect. Everybody shows up, and they want to hear his stories. They want to hear his songs. He had a great time. His one request was, can I stay at your house, and can we get Uncle Nick's? Because he already knew the atmosphere, what he was going into, was going to be okay because it's curated by another person who's a songwriter. I'm not going to feed him to the wolves. You know, you're not, I'm not going to set him up in the corner of a, of a sports bar and go, good luck, man. See you in two hours, and you're going to lose your voice, and you're going to hate, and you're, you're going to have very meaningless interaction with people that care about your songs. No, I'm going to set him up on a stage with a good sound system, with good lighting, with you know, a good crowd that's going to be set up there to focus on listening. A long-winded story to what am I going to leave, what do I want to see is I'd like to see more people hosting shows in Rockford and bring in artists to Rockford because there's so many good people coming through that just, they hear about Rockford, but they drive past because there's no one putting things on here. Right. There's no place for them to play. Yeah. Don Miller, right? Yeah. He's retired, you know. Yeah. He's not doing shows, so someone's got to do it. All right. Well, our guest today has been Miles Nielsen, the leader of the Rusted Hearts, and with great affection, my son, for at least 10 years. And and seriously, you know, the allowance check is coming. It will be there. You you keep looking and checking the mail. Yeah, I'll keep looking. I go down to the mailbox every day. Yeah, all I find is uh, credit card applications with your name on them. Yeah, well, you know, to hell. As long as you don't apply and get any of them. No, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. What we're going to do now, folks, and you'll hear it later... But we're going to switch things around here in our uh, studio. And Miles is going to record a couple tunes. And then we're going to plug them in somewhere along the line that Kervin Thomas, our uh, audio engineer, will figure out makes the most sense. Okay. My abilities are in his hands. That's it. Because a good engineer can make or break you. Try to make it a sound as good as possible. Oh, I have no doubt that he will. Good deal. Thanks, Miles. All right, this is uh, Miles Nielsen from Miles Nielsen, The Rusted Hearts, and uh, this is a song I wrote a number of years ago, but it uh, seems to be uh, fitting for the times. This is a song called Hey, Hey, Hey. Hey, 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 where do we go from here? Hey, 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 where do we go from here? And we fall over And we run through the night And we fall over And it's got to be We're looking for the same light Hey, hey, hey Where do we go from here?
Where do we go from here? Hey, hey, hey Now say where do we go from here? And we fall over And we run through the night And we fall over And it's got to be We're looking for the same line We're looking for the same line I see we're looking for the same line I see we're looking for the same line I see we're looking for the same line Thank you for listening to another Ford the Rock podcast by The Element. You can find us on Apple, Google, or any place you typically access your podcasts. 